were talking in the interview about how you can recall specific details from things that interested you years ago, decades ago. Yeah. But then we were talking about how working memory for ADHD folks is a mess. Totally. And working memory being like someone told me their name 20 seconds ago at a party, it's gone. Or <laughs> right. I'm looking right at a table with stuff on it. I'm looking for the water bottle. I can't see the water bottle for whatever reason. I just put my coffee in a weird place this morning as I was running around the house getting ready. And then I could not find it again because it wasn't in one of the places I always put my coffee. And I, and I had to have my wife find it for me. Do you have a spot for your keys right when you walk in? It's not right when I walk in, but yeah. We've got, I've got a key jar and then a phone plate as well. And it always has to go back there. <laughs> Otherwise, it could end up in the laundry pile. Welcome to this edition of ADD Life Hacks. Just kidding. This is Range. I'm Luke, your host. I'm here with, for the first time ever, with Alyssa Ball. Hi. A longtime first time, longtime writer with Range, first time pod co-host. We're talking this week about ADHD. Our guest is Brooke Matson. She's the executive director of Spark Central, a poet who's written some really beautiful work, and also someone who was diagnosed somewhat late in life with ADHD, which resonated with me because I too was diagnosed in my thirties with ADHD, but it was actually Alyssa, your idea for the show. So what drew you to wanting to talk to Brooke about this topic? Brooke shared on social media, her TEDx talk. And so I listened to it while I was like making breakfast or something. And it made me emotional because it was Hmm. so damn validating. Can I say damn? Yeah. Okay. It was so we usually damn. say sorry, Teresa, when we do that, but yeah, there is, it is okay. That's the tax. You just have to apologize to my mom for swearing. Sorry, Teresa. <laughs> um, it was so validating. And because it was kind of like you ADHD brain haver are not the problem. It's people who don't recognize the value of the side effects of ADHD, which includes creativity, thinking outside the box, flexible, that sort of thing. And it reminded me of a speech that Temple Grandin gave about how we should be treating autistic folks and how there's so much potential there, but we treat them like a problem. So it was really cool to hear Brooke's take. And I know that you have ADHD because we talk about it pretty openly. I also wanted to say that in the interview, I kind of gave the condensed version of like, I found out I have ADHD during lockdown because of spending time, more time on Tumblr. But really, <laughs> I just want to assure folks, like I'm not self-diagnosing because of five memes on Tumblr. They just sort of like sparked the, oh, what if? It was at least a dozen memes. At least a dozen memes <laughs> and specifically about women with ADHD yeah. and what that looks like and how it can go either misdiagnosed or because of comorbidities kind of like unseen. One of the things that actually it came up in the, in the conversation, you're going to hear me shout out Brennan, who's also recording this, when we were all talking about our ADHD, Brooke, Alyssa, and I, and then Brennan's like, me too, guys, hey. Yeah, <laughs> and entire then room. star of the show, Connor Bacon, when he got done editing the interview, the main interview, was like, I had my girlfriend listen to this with me, and she was like, yeah, that's you, bro. And I think, and, and what that made me think was one, there's is, this is probably a lot more widespread than people think. There's a massive stigma around it, which we're going to talk about later. It's like, I'm glad I didn't get diagnosed Hmm. until I was older. But I also think that if I would have been diagnosed younger in a a time when there was less stigma around that, it would have been good for me to have grown up in a world where maybe actually the message of 
Brooks video and what we talk about that like this is just a different brain modality mm-hmm. reframing what is neurotypical in a way that strips it of pathology and stigma would yeah. be awesome. But then I got to thinking that I actually would not have guessed that Connor is ADHD because of how on top of stuff he is and kind of type A he is. Maybe that sort of type A-ness where he, whenever he's got a job to do, he'll just bust it out real quick, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of me. So is that is that a natural byproduct of the way ADHD manifests for him or is that a coping mechanism he's learned over the years to yeah. just be like, okay, I got to get this done now. Yes. I got to bust it out. And a lot of the, a word that keeps coming up, especially with women is like perfectionism or called perfectionist. And a lot of that is sort of like compensation. Or uh, like, I know that I'm going to miss some details that right. are really obvious. I'm using air quotes so that I'm going to get this ready first. And it's going to be, have all this time to correct it. So that's pretty common. I try to create systems both for myself and then surrounding myself with people where that detail oriented work, working memory, like the near term working memory where I'm just working on a project and need to get done. I can sort of crowdsource remembering stuff because I know that I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I might not remember the details, but then also society puts us into a box. Everybody. Both are acculturation, but then certainly by the time we're in school, where it's like you're supposed to sit at a desk, you're supposed to do these things. And it's pretty clear that that's not normative or um, positive. That's that's not something that will enrich the life of a kid with ADHD. Like, we just don't learn that way. And in situations where I think all three of us on this interview had the benefit of being sort of tagged as bright kids when we were younger, which sort of then the narrative became, oh, Luke's just bored. Alyssa's just bored. I, I almost mm. skipped a grade despite not getting good grades when I was younger. And then I think about how the exact same people who maybe weren't as naturally gifted at school or whatever, but were equally creative. Like I think of my friends whose life path diverged really pretty intensely from mine mm-hmm. and who got tagged as dumb kids in school or ADHD kids as a as a, as a stigmatized label hmm. and how that led them to have a different relationship to school and to learning and to all that stuff. And I can't help but think about like how that stigma is like changing people's life paths from yeah. very, very early on in really negative ways. Yeah. Like you get stamped and also with the, the misunderstanding or the assumption that it's like, well, you're just not that smart or like you just, you know, like oh, yeah, truly totally. academically you'll never get there. So we're going to put you on this path toward the trades or whatever it is. And like, you know, I've got family in the trades. I, you know, I have great respect for that. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I think there are trades where there's a lot of problem solving and a lot of variation day to day in the work. I couldn't do it. It's too hard for me. But there's also a lot of trades that are like really monotonous. Yeah. And so I think about like these weird, creative, disruptive kids who are then shunted into, oh, you're not smart. So you need to just do a rote menial job Mm -hmm. that's highly repetitive and that's not going to work for them either. Yeah. So, yeah. Setting them up to fail. And I do, because I had the pleasure of attending high school with Brooke in Yakima, um, and some, we had some classes together, I just want people to know that she kind of downplays her own academic success, but she was super talented yeah. um, at the top of the class and I think in gifted programs since elementary school. I think the takeaway for me then, and again, I'm not like a teacher and I, and I don't know anything about pedagogy, much less, you know, elementary school stuff really, but I can't help but thinking that if we re reframed or at least made space for different learning styles, different attention spans, different Mm -hmm. energy levels, different modalities of 
absorbing information and yeah there would be a lot more people who made it through school feeling like they could tackle life in a way that would be tremendously beneficial for the entire society yeah what, what were the other highlights you were thinking about listening to her talk about the gene that's responsible for sort of like the exploration gene yeah that always blows my mind when there's like biological factors or like evolutionary things and it's like we always think about how awful capitalism is but (laughs) those specific parts about like nine to five doesn't work for everybody like sitting in one place for eight hours doesn't work for everybody this type of monotonous work doesn't work for everybody and yet there's no like systemic way to make that better until we really change things bigger than just one how one student best learns right Oh, there's one uh, note I want to point out. At some point in the podcast, I, we use the phrase normal people, and that's not a reference to um, like neurotypical brains. That's a when we're talking about Einstein and Richard Branson oh, right. versus, quote, the rest of us. Yeah. So like normal people like the rest who aren't, uh, you know, celebrities, I guess. Yeah. Celebrities billionaires. and world, world historic geniuses yes. and, and world historic rich guys. Yeah. I used to work with autistic teens in Bellevue, and what I learned there is this cute little phrase, normal is a setting on the washing machine. <laughs> That's it. There's no such thing as like a, some regular model. Sometimes you need the delicate cycle. Sometimes you need so the delicate cycle. You don't always cycle. want to be on the normal <laughs> setting. All right, we talk about all that, and I'm sure a lot more. <laughs> what you'll hear Brooke and all of us sort of start talking through is recasting this thing that has been historically treated as a, something to fix a pathology something. something to fix something that's a maybe a psychological morbidity mm. to treating it as the way Brooke talks about it is as a superpower exactly let's get to it Brooke Matson, ED of Spark Central poet and ADHD superhero coming up I'm Luke Baumgarten and this is Range Brooke Matson, thanks for coming on range. Oh yeah, it's my honor. So I thought we could start with a little lightning round describing how each of us were we're we're actually in a room with four people with ADHD. <laughs> which I think actually is gonna be foreshadowing for a lot of the conversation we're having today. But I thought we could start by describing how each of us discovered we had ADHD. There were there are two clinical diagnoses in the house. One actually three di- clinical diagnoses we just found 30 seconds ago. One self-diagnosis. And so maybe we could just start with you, Brooke. Like how did you what what was the journey to figuring out that you had ADHD? Well, the short story is a friend who had ADHD strongly suspected I had it and I was in complete denial I was like because I had the stereotype in my head that many people out there probably have of the kid that stabs people in their class with pencils and is bouncing off the walls and you know this rambunctious male child that we all have as a stereotype and I was like absolutely not but then things (laughs) in my life started happening where I was like maybe and you know I was reading up on descriptions and it was a little uncanny so I talked to my doctor who referred me for testing and when I was diagnosed I was pretty shocked 
it rocked my world, I would say, for about a month. I was mm. extremely depressed because mm. I felt like um, I just had such a negative connotation, as many people do with ADHD, because everything you see says, if you have ADHD, you know, you're a mess, you're disorganized, you can't do anything, maybe you'll amount to something on medication, and <laughs> right. you know, you'll end up in prison, and you yeah. know, all these statistics, um, which I think are, you know, we could talk about later, I think are a little skewed, but... I mean, they're real, but I think they don't take into account several things. Right. Um, anyway, so I was very down. And then I started, more people started telling me, you know, I'm ADHD too. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you, you're, yeah. you know, amazing. And I never would have guessed you don't fit that stereotype I have in my head. And so I started digging more and more, did some reading. I found an incredible book called uh, the ADHD Advantage by Dr. Dale Archer, I believe is his name. And he looks at ADHD, ADHD from a historical, clinical, um, you know, brain perspective. He interviews a lot of CEOs who have wow. ADHD and that shifted my perspective significantly. And I started thinking about, gosh, this seems like, you know, he makes the argument that in many cases it's an advantage, um, you know, ev in an evolutionary right. uh, context. Anyway, so I, that is how I got onto the topic. And the more I researched and uh, the more people I discovered were ADHD, uh, the more excited I got. And then I began writing about it. I actually took a sabbatical from work in February 2020, of all times, wow. to write. Um, and I just cranked out a lot of writing based on my research. And um, yeah, and then the TED Talk came out of that. Alyssa, what, what was it like for you? It was actually during uh, the lockdown. I didn't mm. have, I was on like total unemployment and I had all this time on my hands and it came through, I think, Tumblr. Just looking at Tumblr because <laughs> I'm ancient. And uh, specifically women talking about, you know, the bullet points of, or I just remember some diagrams of symptoms that I had no idea were related to ADHD. Because like you said, Brooke, we have this idea of the kid that can't sit still in classroom, C average. That was not me at all. So that, and then also I read a book by Carmen Maria Machado and it's a nonfiction book, but one of the characters, she like never put away all of the boxes when she moved into a place and she had this clutter around, but it didn't really like phase her. She was mm. able to look past it or like she couldn't get herself to put away the boxes. And she was actually sort of the villain of the story. So it was really <laughs> uncomfortable because I'm like, wait, am I, is that me? Yeah. And so that was lining up with other research I was finding on Tumblr. And then looking back at an old ex, I was like, oh, I think he was. And then kind of like comparing us and like, but that means that I might be too. And so then I bought some books and confirmed like, oh yeah, this is totally, this is it. My story was I, in my late twenties, so I had a, an injury where I hit a tree on my bike when I was a kid and it messed up my pelvis and it messed up my knee. And I kind of went through a series of physical therapy when I was sort of in my late adolescence. And then it, in early adulthood, it came back as like pretty significant back injuries when I was like 27. My doctor gave me basically a cocktail of drugs that included Percocet, so opioids, when I would have an acute flare-up and about, and I was at a point where I would have a flare-up like once a year and I'd be like, I would have to like take a bunch of time off work. The first flare-up I had, I literally didn't sleep for like two days. I moved back in with my parents and like lived in a lazy boy because that was like the only way I could get comfortable for like a week until the, uh, like the acute flare up was gone. But then fast forward to like four years when I was 31, we're going through like the fourth or fifth cycle of this and my doctors, and there was a change in the law, the beginnings of like the understanding the, the difficulty with opioids and how addictive they were and stuff, you know, so we're talking about 
well, a decade ago now. And my doctor was like, okay, we've got this new thing that I have to read everybody before I can prescribe you opioids. And she's going through, it's like, it's going to make you sleepy, don't operate heavy machinery, all that stuff. And for some reason, even though I was busy, I was like, actually, it doesn't make me sleepy. It makes me hyper-focused. And I actually had been self-medicating. I got to the point where the acute back pain was low enough that I could get off of it and still have a little bit of the Percocet left over. And I had started because I had such an intense high-demand job. Well, I had noticed the focus. And so I started basically squirreling away a few Percocets for when I knew I needed to really, really focus at work. And I told her that story and she's like, cool, can we schedule another appointment uh, as soon as possible? I'm like, oh my God, does she think I'm a drug addict? And she's like, I'm like, why? And she goes, I think you have, I think you have ADD. And so she, she, she was just a general practitioner. She tested me and she's like, yeah, you're real ADD. Prescribed me Ritalin, which was awful for me. And so I went off of it for basically almost a decade. The Ritalin was such a bad experience that I was like, I'm just going to self-regulate or try to regulate with what, like, however I can. And then it was then back during the pandemic, recognizing that my life's gotten intensely more complex when I was just writing for the Inlander. And that, that felt complex enough. And I was just feeling very, very scattered all the time, knowing that I had this diagnosis and had tried to sort of use a mix of like the way I'd organized my life, like to the point of like being like, I'm not particularly good at organizing. So with the other parts of my life, I need to make sure that I'm always partnered up with somebody who's good at like helping us keep our joint tasks on track. The minutia. The minutia. And then I was like, I went to my therapist then and was like, I think I would at least like to experiment with something like Adderall. Because I'd heard better things about Adderall than Ritalin. And so it's been about a year on that. And it, it, makes, a, it makes a decent difference in, in ways we can talk about. But um, yeah, that's my story. It's interesting because I think a lot of ADHD or ADD people find out by accident. Um, yeah. Because they don't, they're not flagged in school, which is, mm-hmm. I think, interesting as well. Yeah, I was not even close to being flagged in school. Yeah, same here. I'm guessing all of us were the same way. Brooke, can you talk about this sense of shame that often accompanies ADHD, especially when it's undiagnosed? Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons I decided um, to do a a TED Talk on it. Because I, I do feel like, and even today I will read things and there is, you know, there's statistics and research, right. Mm-hmm. That, that say, you know, if you're ADHD, you have a higher chance of ending up in these negative situations. But I also think that when in reality, when you look at people who are ADHD, there's a diversity of life success that is as diverse as for any other neurodiversity or any category of person, there's going to be a wide variety, right? And I think that for me, the shame came from that stereotype and having been a teacher for many years in a traditional school and then an alternative school, which says something, you know, (laughs) working really enjoyed the variety of, of that role probably because of my ADHD. But I worked with a lot of students who, when I didn't know anything about ADHD, had that diagnosis. I think some that was a product of trauma, which often creates a misdiagnosis of ADHD when really it's a, you know, traumatic symptoms, which right. a whole other thing to talk about. But <laughs> for me, it was important to break that shame because I went through that process personally and it was so hard to overcome discovering that and then finally getting to a point where I could tell people, hey, I'm ADHD and finding out they were too and that many of them felt like it was an advantage for them or something that had allowed them to do something really creative or unusual in their life, but also had resulted in suffering because they were disruptors essentially and not willing to just go along with the grain when they had different ideas or wanted to do something innovative. Uh, 
I was like, why don't we talk about this? Because I feel like in my life, ADHD has resulted in a lot of my successes, yeah. um, both as a writer, as a startup you know, executive director. It, has it created some suffering? Yes, but usually because the environment is not uh, conducive right. to you know, innovation and, and those things. So I think it's important that people with ADHD or ADD know that sometimes it's not you, it's the environment. Because if you are a person who thrives on discovery, adventure, finding, you know, exploring the unknown, and you're in an environment that is asking you to do routine things over and over, follow protocol, monotonous, you are going to be, your brain is not going to get the chemicals it needs Mm -hmm. to feel okay. Hmm. And then sometimes like in school, that might result in acting out with employees. It might result in like, you know, being bored or trying to like, you know, check Facebook while you're at work because you're, you know, you're not stimulated enough. Um, or just not doing well in that job. And that's unfortunate because I think if you're ADHD, you need to be placed in an environment and a role or find that for yourself, create it for yourself um, where you can thrive. And a lot of times that's entrepreneurship. A lot of times it's do, going into a creative field or yeah. doing a job that's high stakes and very fast paced. So you're constantly stimulated and have mm-hmm. that something to draw your attention to constantly. Well, I think it might actually be how I found journalism. I was, I thought I wanted to be an academic. And mm-hmm. so I started, but you know, the, the, I went to Gonzaga and the, the programs I was in were not really built around postgraduate education. So I was going to do a bunch of stuff myself, like start, like basically write the sort of critical essay that I would have written in more of a like grad prep, you mm-hmm. know, BA. And when I started doing research, like that deep research where it would have required me to basically pick a discipline and spend my entire life studying that discipline, I was like, no, oh, yeah. I'm not going to be able to do this. I just, I know that I'm not going to be able to give a shit about this thing that right now I actually do care a lot about. It was like, I wanted to do something on like the modern novel basically. And even in the process of writing that like spec essay that I was going to use to try to get into grad school, I was like, no, I'm going to get bored of this. And so I just kind of, I still did it. I went through the process. I got accepted to some schools and thankfully I found journalism at the same time. And that where it's like you're writing two or three different things every week or whatever, you're constantly talking to new people. And that to me, now in hindsight, it just felt like, oh, I'm home. I get to have so much fun. I get to play around in all these different things. I get to, I get to engage with whatever random little curiosity I have. And then that can be a a hundred word, a little blurb. It can be one conversation with one person or a little bit of research, or it can be 10 conversations with a bunch of different people. And I found that actually my retention for stuff, I'll find myself returning to things like, you know, the criminal legal system or incarceration. And it's like the stuff that I was writing in 2012 I have a recall of that's wild to me where I like, <laughs> I can remember specific conversations I had with Brian Beggs before he was a city council president about specific issues in the exactly. criminal legal system. When I mention it to him, when I'm doing a follow-up interview, he's like, I can't believe you remember that. So it's like, I often feel like I'm forgetting all of the details of my day-to-day life, right. which does cause shame for me. What's the term like poor working memory? Isn't that right? For ADHD, so like you can look at um, the shoes you're trying to find are right in front of you and you can be looking at them and not see them. Oh, that happens all I the think time. So. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think of it like Sherlock Holmes, who like the fictional character who, you know, in the book was, forgot that the earth revolved around the sun because it wasn't relevant to yeah. his like day-to-day life. And that's, <laughs> I think, how the ADHD brain works is it, you know, is this relevant to what I'm interested in? No, you go away. <laughs> like, yeah. I need this, you know, yeah. and that's what makes us good at focusing in building something new or like, you know, I remember when Spark Central was starting up, I mean, things were just crazy. We're, you know, working long hours. I could remember all these details that I needed because it had to do with what I was 
interested in and I wanted to build this kind of program and I know who to talk to. And this person told me three years ago that they wanted to do this and I'm going to reach out to them and they can bring this person. And you know, all the details come together because it, it is of interest. And I think that's something with neurodiversity is every brain is different, right? Whether you have something like ADHD or not, right? every brain has a different map to it. If that makes sense. So you said that when you got diagnosed, you felt really intense shame. I, when I got diagnosed, I felt intense relief because it at least gave me like a word for the way I'd always felt different. But I, but then you said in your, in your talk, and I feel this exact same way that it would have been way worse for you if you would have been diagnosed younger. Like I'm a kid, I'm a kid who dealt with even like suicidal ideation in like seventh grade and and a little bit and depression in fifth grade. I think it would have been catastrophic if I would have been diagnosed. Same here. Largely because of the stigma that you already sort of hinted at in, you know, as, as being a teacher. It's like if I had had enough success in my life that when I got diagnosed, I was like, oh, I get it now. And I had sort of leaned on just the intense, like incandescent creativity that I don't even know where it comes from. It just kind of appears in my brain and had gotten enough positive reinforcement that I was like, oh, this is cool. Now I get it. And maybe I can find a roadmap to sort Mm -hmm. of alleviate some of the pain that I felt in other parts of my life. But you'd also been really, really successful when you got diagnosed. Like, why did you feel shame? Well, well, and I think that I actually, even in the literature, one of the traits of ADHD is feeling like you've never done enough, no matter how much you've actually accomplished. Yeah. I've told, (laughs) isn't that crazy? I've told my therapist that I wake up every day feeling like a piece of shit who needs to justify, I I need to justify my survival every single day. I think many of us with you know ADHD feel that way. And I have always been a perfectionist. Alyssa and I went to high school together. She knows that um, I was definitely an A student, but that is actually pretty common. I'm finding girls and women with ADHD. I think, I don't know if it's gender norms um, of girls or just, or women are socialized to be pleasers more, you mm-hmm. know, as we know. But for me, I very much wanted, uh, I needed attention and love as a child and school was a way I got that. And mm. so when I realized that I was forgetting homework a lot and, you know, just a teacher would call me and I'd be like, Hey, hey what, what are we talking about? And yeah. be embarrassed. I felt so much shame. And so I had all these coping mechanisms for like, you know, which is, I think a great survival tactic. Actually I had in high school, I knew, one person in each class that I could call and be like, so what was the homework again? (laughs) And then I would go do it, you know, or I'd miss, I'd space out in class because I was like, my mind would wander thinking about probably actually the subject matter sometimes. Like I'd get really interested Mm -hmm. and start thinking about all these wild connected ideas and miss what the teacher was continuing to say. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I would go home and kind of fill in the gaps with what I missed. So I'd come home and do homework until like, I mean, late at night because... So I'd stay up all night to do essays, refining my ideas because I wanted it to be perfect. So I think ADHD people are often self-directed. They often can be perfectionist because they feel this, I'm not good enough. And a part of that is just this, you feel chaotic in your mind because mm-hmm. you see all these possibilities and ideas and you know you missed information. You're yeah. aware of that because you were thinking about something else. And so there's this drive to sort of cover that up. Um, Mm. And for me, that came out as perfectionism, which I think is a common adaptation for many girls um, and probably some some other genders as well, so. Definitely, and I'm finding that in my research, um, also a lot of way it manifests for women is sort of like, not so much hyperactivity, but the daydreaming, what looks like daydreaming. The Luna Love good effect. (laughs) (laughs) Thought wandering, it's going somewhere, but that can also, it's very common for women to get misdiagnosed as like anxiety disorders because you are like so nervous about something you might have missed mm-hmm. or the 
internal pressure, perfectionism. Yes. Stuff, that actually quotes. happened to me. I was, yeah, I was misdiagnosed with anxiety. Yeah. And I always felt like that just wasn't it, but I didn't really know what else it could be. So I was like, yeah, I probably just need I'm anxious, but now it all makes sense. <laughs> I think another difficulty is often like comorbidity. Like, so people will have ADHD and bipolar or like, and these other things. So trying to figure out what's really going on. Mm-hmm. It's not always yeah. straightforward. I, before I ever thought I might be have ADHD, I thought I might be autistic actually where, because like the stimulus is so intense for me mm-hmm. a lot of the time that like I would, I would find myself. And again, obviously like we're talking about the nineties when all this stuff was much less known than it was. And certainly in the, the rural place that I grew up, I did know that I had like this thing about my mind that made me like hyper focused on certain things and I also had this intense sometimes need to just escape stimulus and so like I was like am I like just a teeny bit autistic I don't even know and that was and I think maybe because of the way the stigma has sort of built around you know hyperactive young like men or boys whatever and really like it was like the ADHD kids were labeled the dumb kids in school. Like mm-hmm. that was the way that teachers treated them. That was the way that students, other students treated them. It was like, oh, Derek's the dumb kid or he's the hyperactive kid. And it's and it was somehow like he's hyperactive because he's not paying attention because he has some sort of intellectual deficiency. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah. because he's like his brain works in a different way and he's probably like wildly creative. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. let's, let's, uh, yeah, let's dig into that because you mentioned autism and that's a form of neurodivergence as is ADHD. Yeah. Brooke, do you want to break down like what's the difference between neurodivergence and things like psychological or mood disorders or, well, I'll say I'm not a psychologist or a doctor, but <laughs> I, I know that as an educator, you know, every brain works differently and is very organically wired. Like when, when you connect a synapse, that synapse is not going to be in the same place in someone else's brain, which is why when you do surgery, they, you know, neurosurgery, they will sometimes surgeons will like touch a part of your brain and ask what that made you think of because it's different in every brain. Right. I mean, generally we know kind of the places things go, but Dr. Medina, who's a, a brain scientist out of Seattle, I think put it once in a training I went to is it's sometimes like, you know, a blender where things get scattered on the inside when you blend it. And that's sort of how your brain works. It puts it where it can based on like connotations and and connections. So when it's an emergent structure. So if I, if I read a book, it's a certain point in my life, it might get put somewhere. And if you read the same book at a different point in your life. Right. And so as an educator, we have something called differentiation where you try to teachers are encouraged to change the instruction or the curriculum based on the needs of students. However, when you have 30 students in a classroom, that is extremely difficult (laughs) out, you know, sometimes impossible. But the idea is that, um, which I strongly believe in and why I taught an alternative school for many years is that you want to match. You should have matched the learning environment to the students needs, not put a student in environment and ask them to adapt to the environment. Mm-hmm. you know, to the school's needs, because that's right. that doesn't make any sense, right? So neurodivergence, I see as, you know, people's brains are wired differently, and they have different needs, mm-hmm. chemically, and in terms of stimulus, like, you know, obviously, introverts are more, you know, less stimulus. People with ADHD have this, like, open door to stimulation mm-hmm. that that it all comes in, as Luke mentioned. So um, for me, I think people like to put things in boxes. And I think you can do that. Um, to a point, but also I think everybody's wired differently, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I, that comes from working with students many years and having ADHD 
people and meeting ADHD adults who are all over the place. I mean, people who are oftentimes labeled as gifted, which gifted people struggle in school. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of, you know, I have no, again, I'm not a doctor, but I do see ADHD as kind of a way of being gifted and that you don't thrive in a typical classroom easily. You know, you have to create adaptations and so forth, you know, and then you have people with extreme needs like psychoses, you know, that occurs with or without ADHD. So anyway, that's kind of a hashed out answer to your question, but I think everyone's brain is different. And, uh, you know, Luke and I are both ADHD and, and we have different needs and ways of adapting our environment that works for us. And when I think like we've got four people in the room that have ADHD and I think of them all as like incredibly accomplished in different ways, really creative in different ways and like really, really active members of society in different ways. Like all four of us do a lot of different stuff in our communities. And this is part of what bothers me about maybe it's, you know, maybe we should have asked a psychologist to come on to be part of this round table because so when I, I got the big like omnibus, like uh, mental workup when, when I got diagnosed by my therapist for ADHD. So they did, they did a bunch of tests for other, for mood disorders and stuff like schizophrenia and stuff. That's just like, they kind of throw everything at you to check all the boxes. I had had, you know, a big chunk of the therapy I'd been undergoing, undergoing to that point had been for like, I have like moments of depression and, and moments of intense mania where I'm like, and that didn't show up in the diagnosis. And I asked my therapist about it. I'm like, why Why didn't it show up that I, I maybe do, do I have bipolar or do I have something less than that? And she was like, the way the DSM works is basically you only get diagnosed if it's detrimental to your life. And I was like, so there's no proactive way that like this entire discipline of mental health can say, oh, here's a reason you feel sad a lot or you feel really, really excited sometimes. It's short. It's actually, it would be better if we made it more normative so that we could figure out ways to sort of, mm-hmm. to help you work through that, whether it's with, you know, medication or, or just coping mechanisms before it starts being destructive to your life or destructive to your people. So why don't, and, right. and the idea, um, Alyssa pointed this out in our notes, the fact that it's attention uh, deficit hyperactivity disorder. I don't think of this as a disorder. For me, like, I don't mm-hmm. feel, feel like what I have is a disorder. What I feel Agreed. like is to your point, And the reason I thought your talk was so great, it's like, it, it actually feels like a superpower and it's, but it is a superpower that needs other supports in order to like be at its most super, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually appreciate you brought up the DSM. Cause I do think that that is something that the DSM evolves every year, right? right? It's, this is a human created tool to put a box around a phenomenon and say, this is what this is. And it's constantly evolving over the years. And to your point about my talk as a, you know, pointing it out as a superpower, I do feel like sometimes we like to call something a disorder when it doesn't fit the mainstream culture. And it makes me think back to all kinds of You know, like even, um, I think it was Aristotle. I'm pretty sure it was Aristotle who said like women's bodies were disordered, right? Because Mm. at the time it didn't fit the male. (laughs) Right, yeah. yeah, It didn't fit. This is everything's male. Male's the the greatest thing you can be. Therefore, anything female is like, eh. And throughout history, there's been, you know, There there were a few other things Aristotle was wrong about too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But like things, you know, and you can like look at racism and, and all kinds of ways we've marginalized different groups because they didn't fit our version of how something should function or way, the ways it should be. And we have what we would call um, neurotypical brains as being this kind of like the pinnacle of perfect. Right. And anything diverging from that is negative. And that is a, a sad thing to me because people who are ADHD generally are far more creative 
you know, when you do look at the studies, there's a lot of creativity there. Just like with autism, there's mm. a high um, divergent thinking. That's it. An ability to think divergently um, exists. And because that is not the norm and doesn't can be awkward for people who don't operate that way, it sometimes gets shunted to the side. And that's a major disservice, I think, to kids and why I think a diagnosis early on would have been very hurtful because it says you don't belong, right? Mm. And for a child who's like trying to figure out their identity, that would have been just soul crushing to me right. <laughs> because I wanted so bad to belong and just yeah. fit in and be normal. And I always felt... You know, I think a lot of ADHD folks say that they always felt there was something different about them, like they never quite fit in. An ADHD diagnosis, you know, when made official is like, oh, that's why, you know, all these years I've struggled in, you know, these different ways. It's because I am different, but that's not necessarily bad, you know. I do think a lot of the the shame comes from uh, neurotypical people making assumptions that mm-hmm. like, you know, the way we have communication styles where we want to relate it to ourselves first or like, oh yeah, that reminds me of when I went to San Francisco and this, it's a way of like, we want to make a connection mm. and that's often interpreted as self-absorbed mm-hmm. or like you're, you're focused on yourself all the time. And it's like, no, no, that's not what it is. Or like, um, time blindness. That's one of my biggest struggles is time blindness oh yeah it's interpreted by capitalist culture as unprofessional rude you know like you don't care about others you don't value our time and it's like no I really 20 minutes and 20 seconds are a little bit bendy for me (laughs) or if I'm in something it's hard to pull myself out of it it's also hard to get into things sometimes Mm -hmm. too oh yeah yeah my best friend is a timer because I think sometimes it's easy to get paralyzed by possibility because you have two hours, say, to get, you know, 10 things done. And you're like, where do I begin? Oh, my God. And (laughs) so I just, you know, my solution to that has always just been set a timer, pick one, go. Pick the one that makes you sweat the most. And then sometimes you can bang that out in time so quick, you know, when you can just focus on it and let the other stuff fall away. But for me, I almost have to force that with a timer because that timer makes me just let's get on pace and, and go. Whereas if I have plenty of time or things in the future, I'm like, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure this out later, you know? Mm-hmm. But strangely, I think that being, yeah, under a timer or having a deadline that's looming energizes me in a way because it focuses my attention. Um, I get an adrenaline rush mm. that gives me like a dopamine hit when I can achieve something and be like, okay, I'm halfway there, you know? Yeah. So that, that kind of almost race mentality, mm-hmm. uh, I think really can benefit an ADHD person or, or child if they're if they're in that sort of situation and there's not parameters that are crushing like like a timed essay where you have to do it a very specific way. Mm. You know, if there's choice involved, sometimes that can help an ADHD person. But anyway, timer is my my way of dealing with that paralysis or or making myself forcing myself to pay attention to time in a way that I normally don't. In your talk that we're going to link to, you sort of just give this list of like really impressive people throughout history who either ultimately were diagnosed as having ADHD or there's a strong sort of suspicion that they were ADHD. And two of the names, I'm kind of cherry picking here a little bit, but it led me to ask a question that I've been fascinated by about kind of, and it's actually been a recurring theme in this podcast, the neoliberal turn and the way that everything is so much harder and more austere in American culture and probably world culture. It was Richard Branson, who's one of the billionaires who almost went to space, right? And Albert Einstein, who, you know, everybody agrees is like one of the most brilliant thinkers of maybe human history. Both of those folks either built for themselves or were sort of 
cradled inside institutions that allowed them to, in, so in Branson's case, you're like, he's created 400 companies. And it's like, well, how many people does he employ at all of those companies to want to become a billionaire, but then also to like help manifest and really help support the wildness of his creativity. And then Einstein, it was like, the, you know, the US government and various universities completely supported him to go do whatever you want. It's like, all you're, the resources. you're a genius. Mm-hmm. Here's a room. Here's some money. You never have to th- worry about making ends meet. Just go be brilliant. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that there's less time for all of us and there's less support for regular people. And even, you know, academics, like we know the way the university system's falling apart. How can normal people with ADHD carve out space for themselves in a world that feels increasingly austere and increasingly mm-hmm. exploitative? Because like when I have a lot of stuff to do, like if what I feel like I have to do is not aligned with what I want, what my brain wants exactly. to do, then yeah. it becomes crippling. So for the folks that don't have the sort of freedom that some of us have, and certainly not the support that like Einstein or Richard Branson have, how does that, how can normal people sort of carve space for themselves to feel like their ADHD has is a superpower. Yeah, that is never easy. I I do think that like Richard Branson wasn't always a billionaire, right? And yeah. Albert Einstein wasn't always Albert Einstein as we knew him. You know, he was unemployed. He couldn't get into university because right. he was very uncooperative and wanted to do things his own way. That's a good point. You know, um, so like it, I actually, I he fascinates me and I've read some biographies and he is just like, you read the things he does and you're just like, man, this this guy does not care that he doesn't fit in and he is continually <laughs> just pursuing, he's hyper-focused on his ideas. But I think, I think that is the challenge is how do you carve out that space? And I feel very lucky that I mean, I've always had poetry on the side that I turned to as a as a hobby that took, you know, my personal time to like carve that aside and stuff. Getting this job with Spark and getting to found help found Spark Central, it allowed me to use my creativity in a way that was perfect for me. You know, I got mm-hmm. to build something from scratch and get creative in the ways that we did things and someone would have a cool idea and we'd be like, let's do that, right? So that is lucky. I think that for a lot of people that are trying to make ends meet, right? And if they're parents, they don't have any time, you know, they are trying to survive. And that's hard. I I mean, I wish we had a society. Um, I have a friend that lives in Norway, and there's a lot more choice because mm, yeah. socioeconomically, you can do what you're best at mm. and not have to worry if it comes with the prestige of a, a high salary per se. I mean, right. there's, it's more... Um, close together, I would say, like yeah. nurses can make a, a really great wage the same as, you know, construction workers mm. and not feel like they're sacrificing who they are per se. So I wish we had a society more like that, where we had those options to pursue things and not end up in poverty. Right. Uh, yeah. So, but I think it's a shame that oftentimes ADHD folk, not much is expected of them and therefore they're pushed into positions where they're going to be dealing with a lot of routine and monotony, mm-hmm. um, you oh, know, and yeah. doing, you know, end up in a cubicle instead of in a position where they would do better, where there's a lot of variety, a lot of risk, um, you know, higher stakes where they have to get creative. I mentioned that in the ADHD Advantage book, there's a lot of examples of CEOs and entrepreneurs who are highly successful. Mm. It's because the traditional workplace doesn't work for them. So yeah. they, you know, find a way to build their own environment. I know I've met many ADHD people now um, having given the talk and, you know, just throughout the years. And I'm always uh, astounded at how successful ADHD people, the ADHD people I know can be. Yeah. And I know there's 
plenty of people who aren't quote unquote successful in an economic sense. But um, I think it's just, do you have the, do you fall into privilege or circumstance or whatever, where you can find that environment or build it for yourself? And it's hard because some people pursue that and never get there. But um, I think, you know, that's my advice to anyone ADHD is just try to build or find that environment for yourself because you will thrive in that. And it's a breath of fresh air when you get it, you know, mm-hmm. like I've, I feel like in some ways I was born to be a teacher and I was born to build Spark Central because it fits so perfectly with who I am in terms of my, you know, neurodiversity and in my personality and my love for, you know, creative things and constantly building something new. If I was in something where I'm doing the same same tasks all the time I get bored Um, so I like that you had one quote from your video was another word for daydreamer is visionary (laughs) I really liked that and then you talked a little bit about something called like the explore gene yeah yeah can you talk a little bit about the explore gene yes the oh my gosh I gotta get it right because I uh drd4 gene I believe of the seven R variant of the drd4 gene that's what it is yeah it's sometimes called the wanderlust gene or the explore gene but there's uh, you can Google it. There's all these studies of that gene being linked to divergent thinking, you know, which is essentially like creative thinking, um, like thinking outside the box and um, and creativity. And it's also, I believe there's a few studies where in folks who came from nomadic cultures, it was higher. Whoa. Yeah. Mm, so yeah, there's actually this book called Hunters Not Farmers or something like that. But it, the premise is that like, Back in the day, there was, you know, hunters and agrarian cultures and the hunters essentially evolved to become ADHD people because, you know, they had to always be alert. You know, they were focused on danger, not on this routine that is agrarian culture. And Mm. anyway, I have read that book um, years ago and found it interesting, but there is a lot of evidence that suggests that there is some kind of survival mechanism to ADHD, that it's a way for nature to keep people exploring and having that hunter mentality of I'm going to go find new land, I'm going to like scope out something new um, and explore a bit rather than just stay put and do the same thing every year after year. So Be satisfied. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I, th- I found it very fascinating and interesting because um, my whole family is very, well, not my whole family, but I would say there's a high incidence of ADHD in my family uh, and same. also <laughs> a lot of uh, immigration uh, from cultures that were traditionally nomadic. And hmm. so I find that interesting. I have oh. no idea if there's any connection there, but in reality, but... In the research I've done, it seems like there is a um, genetic component or like, you know, Mm -hmm. if your parents had it. And for me, that was one thing that kind of threw me off because I was like, okay, well, I know who in my family definitely has it. And they have the, you know, they didn't enjoy school, but I love school. Mm -hmm. I love learning. I'm so curious. I want to know about everything. I want to be on Quiz Bowl team. So that was interesting to me that it's kind of like also, especially in women hoarding behavior, they're, they're finding these possibly linked to ADHD. Mm. And I'm wondering if that's because of that sort of like out of sight, out of mind ability we have to be like, okay, I'll just put that there and then get to it. I'll use it someday. And then because it's a non-preferred task, guess what? I never get to unpack it and just piles into another box or another. So, I mean, I always have 150 tabs open on my computer, which I feel like it's definitely, I don't have a, I don't have a real life in real life hoarding mentality, but I definitely do when it comes to information where I'm like, if I close this tab, I'm going to forget it exists. So I just got done saying about how we don't have institutions to support people for the institutions that we have. 
And I'm thinking specifically about education and then employment. What are the accommodations that educators or people's bosses can make for their ADHD students or staff to just give them the space they need to really thrive? Oh, man, that's a big question. I think uh, in some ways I tried to shape Spark Central's operations manual to be a little bit a little bit like that in that it's an, uh, where employees can be as creative as they can be. I'm very anti-meeting <laughs> mm. because it's like, unless we have a reason to meet, I just don't want to sit there and talk about nothing yeah. uh, or, or like spitball. So I think Asana where things can be asynchronous, you know, where you can, or, or, you know, software like that, where yeah, you can right. or slack, where you can start a thread. People can throw on their thoughts when they have a moment rather than like immediately. And then you know, we have a, a kind of policy that you're not required to continually check email. <laughs> I um. made this policy for myself mainly, but <laughs> it benefits everyone that you are allowed to have blocks of, of work time where you can actually focus on a project and get it done as long as you check email like three times a day. And you can check it more than that, you know, of course. And I often do check it like, you know, 10 times a day. But if I need to focus on something and, you know, hunker down on a, a grant or a design thing or, or what have you, I can shut that out. Whereas if you have a continually pinging phone or a distraction, mm -hmm. it is going to sabotage your ability to get deep and, and hyper-focus on what you need to, to focus on. And so asynchronous stuff for the workplace, I think is really helpful in just allowing people to have time to, um, to focus and an environment too. Like I think remote working really changed things for a lot of people because mm -hmm. when I moved, uh, I work kind of part-time in Spark and part-time from home. And I always have even pre-pandemic. When I moved my office to my official office to home, my productivity skyrocketed because people weren't disrupting me constantly yeah. and saying, oh, hi. you know, they say hi, they ask you questions, which and none of it's bad, right? It's good. But it didn't allow me to like get into the work yeah. that I needed to, to strategically move things forward. For schools, I, oh my gosh, I could go on for a whole podcast about that. But I do think that the sad thing to me is that our education system has very much become curriculum based in that there's a curriculum, you get through it, you can adapt a little bit for students, but in the end, that's the curriculum mm -hmm. versus adapting, again, the learning, the curriculum, the way that a student learns around that individual, because that's what we did at Meet Alternative High School when I worked there. And kids just thrived, you know, ADHD kids and kids without it in whatever circumstance, because it, we took into account, you know, sometimes even their racial history, like if a student had a very interest, uh, had a big interest in Chicano culture, because that's where they came from, we would try to adapt, you know, their mm. ability to do a project around that part of history, you know, instead of this one specific thing that the test was on, right? So project-based learning is great because it allows for variability and student choice. Mm. Um, having small schools is essential. I feel like oh, if yeah. we had small schools, our no one wants to hear this because it's so expensive, right? Because you need more <laughs> teachers and more buildings and everything. But if you had smaller classrooms, you would see test scores go up mainly because teachers would be able to know their students and have the ability and time to adapt mm. what they're doing a little bit more to their students. I've had big classes at a big high school and I've had small classes um, of 10 to 18 students and it's incredible what yeah. you can do in a smaller classroom versus a bigger classroom. The students feel safer. I mean, there's a whole other range of benefits that goes far beyond ADHD. But I just think that that we have this mentality of like, get with the program, adapt to our 
curriculum or our system. And in a way that is a survival thing, right? We all have to adapt to certain things to get by and, and that's a life skill. But on the other side, if you're not willing to adapt a little bit and get to know a student and say, gosh, you have these needs or these interests. Um, We want to build an education around you, which is what people did in the old days, like with Mm. tutors and apprenticeships. That is, I think, a far more effective strategy and creates someone who's in control of their learning, understands how their brain works and how they need to study. And that gives them the tools to go, say, to a university and have this toolkit, I guess, to to adapt to that environment. ADHD folks tend to do better in college than they do in high school because there's a lot more choice. You don't always have to show up to class. You can read the book at your own leisure and then just take, you know, the test or or do what you need to do. Any self-directed learning is better for ADHD folks, you know, and I've, my little sister taught herself um, Irish dance from YouTube, but then they went, she went to an actual studio and he was like, she's at the advanced level. And we're like, what, you know, because <laughs> she was so hyper-focused on that and she did it all on her own, right. Without mm-hmm. any formal instruction. And I think more and more that is possible now, but we still have this, like, this is the curricula, you know, we shall yeah, march through. Right. Uh, and what you're describing reminds me a little bit of like the Montessori model yeah. or like the student led uh-huh. education type stuff. I do wish that, yeah, when it comes to employers and schools it's like there's an obsession about promptness we're doing this thing at the same time when Mm -hmm. really research is like "Eh, kids all kids no matter their brain could benefit from sleeping in right but because it doesn't line up with you know the nine to five capitalist cycle that's kind of like well we can't do it yeah and i have a habit of reading about ceos and startups that do things really creatively Mm -hmm. and have like really powerful results um i forget the ceo but there's one that like refuses to have any meeting whatsoever and only does things like through like video recordings that they send back and forth through using Loom and stuff. And it's so fascinating to me because it's like that he adapted that environment to himself and they're like a a huge company. Uh, Uh So I think the more people in power, right? Like the CEOs and stuff have the ability to adapt things. But when you're just starting out and you're on the bottom, you have to, you know, you're kind of at the mercy of whatever the system is. Right, for sure. I mean, do you have any advice as somebody who's been through it? Like, for people who might be struggling with either the fear of being ADD or the reality of being diagnosed or people who are maybe at an earlier phase of their, that sort of like self-discovery, what was it like for you? And, and, and do you have any advice you can offer folks? Yeah. The Ted talk was a little bit of like ADHD coming out for me because I, Mm -hmm. you know, I told people, but because of the stigma, I don't always like advertise it in broad strokes. But part of the reason I did is I hope that more people as we're doing here can say like, Hey, I, I'm not a hot mess. And I actually like have ADHD and have done really cool things and creative things in my life because I feel like there is tons of people like that in the world. And if they were more front and center in news or just, it was talked about more that there, that stigma would have a lot less weight. Right. Um, because we don't talk about the success stories. We talk about a lot of times the failures and the the negative statistics without talking about all the the other side of things. So I think seeking out supportive people is important. I, I do feel like the more we can break down that stigma, the easier it will be for people to like feel when they have a do- diagnosis, perhaps as a child, it's not uh, a condemnation or has any bearing on their future other than you're going to learn differently. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to operate in environments a little bit differently. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. That just means you have to do things a little differently. And I would imagine, like, if we really cared about future success, we would teach 
kids to advocate for their needs. So like, exactly. all right, you know that you're an insomniac. So when you're looking for a job, this is the parameters. Or like, you know that for me, my brain shuts off after like 3, 4 p.m. I just can't do creative work the same. There's a shift. And I can do it like 7 a.m., no problem. But I think everyone's a little different or everyone's got their sweet spot. Yeah. But it's, it's taken me fa- failing a lot, as you say in your video, got to fail. To figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Failing with jobs where it's like, oh, that's not a good fit for my brain. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I'm a I'm a ding dong. Yeah. Or I can't, I'm not up to snuff. <laughs> it means that that's not the right environment for, I know what my hardware is up here in my brain. Yes. And I know certain things. I'm going to need some flexibility. I'm going to need some independence. I'm going to need some, you know. Uh-huh. No, exactly. And going, being in like my 20s and doing you know, sit down for eight hour jobs in the same place and realizing the hard way that that just does not going to work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, I think that average is something like, like every person will have at least five years ago or so when I read this information, it was something like every student that's in high school now will have like seven to 10 careers, which is crazy to think about. But there's, we teach kids to like, you have to have it all figured out. And then like you go do, you like go to school for this thing and then you do it forever. And I feel like, the best thing we can have kids do, and I think what we have, try to have them do a lot at Spark Central is try a lot of different things, you know, mm. and figure out, does this work for me? Like, uh, do I love this? Is this my, you know, my jam? And if so, let's just keep doing it and pursuing it, you know? Mm. Um, one of the things that I think is cool about Spark Central, one kind of like signifier of ADHD is jumping from hobby to hobby. <laughs> getting really interested in something, buying a bunch of oil paints and then losing interest after like six weeks, getting really interested in, in uh, latch hook rugs and then moving on to something else. But, but what's cool about Spark is that like you can go in and do coding, you can go in and do, um, you know, artistic stuff, you can go and do literary stuff, you can do build models. Yeah. So there's that room, I mean, to not break your budget too, just be like, I'm just gonna try it out. Yeah. I'm just yeah. gonna try this and that. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I mean, yeah, that's how we all learn and I think it's important to give people that that option to to try and learn. In fact, I remember working with a student who, when I worked at Meet Alternative, who had these grandiose ideas about what they wanted to do and never could deliver. And so, you know, each time we'd like break the project down further and say, okay, so that that didn't work. So like, let's try scaling it back this time and breaking it down into smaller tasks. And I think I think you just learn by doing. I, I really believe that. So. What's been your big takeaway sort of as a way of wrapping up here, like either through this process that led you to do the TED talk or maybe even since then stuff, just hearing from the folks like you mentioned, who've kind of come out of the woodwork, like, do you have a sort of a a takeaway from this journey you've been on? Boy, yeah. You know, I think, I think that the phrase that I use in the TED talk of audacious, driven and hyper creative by design Hmm. is something I I put that in the talk because I kind of made that as my own mantra as I went through reading about ADHD and looking at studies and looking at my own life, I realized that, that myself and the people that I'd read about and, and knew personally that had ADHD always kind of had those traits and they were never ashamed of them. I mean, sometimes they were ashamed of the ADHD diagnosis, but they weren't ashamed of sort of the traits that came with it, the traits that came with it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That they were, they were bold and willing to do things differently, sometimes quietly and sometimes overtly at great cost. They were very driven to pursue what it, their big ideas or their passions. And they were constantly like seeing millions of possibilities, um, you know, and they didn't always get to chase them all, but they were big dreamers, you know, and sometimes 
that last DI uses design in the talk, but sometimes I think of it as disruptive. And actually, that is something I wanted to, to add, too, is there was a study... There was a study I read about in Adam Grant's book, uh, The Originals, mm. where teachers rated their favorite students and their least favorite students were the most creative students because they would make up their own rules and constantly try to deviate from mm. what the teachers wanted, which I know from being a teacher is annoying because you know you have this much time and you got to get through this curriculum and it's stressful. When well, you're and in a class with 30 other kids. Exactly. Uh, if you're in a big high school. So, so it's like, come on, would you just get with the program? And, you know, and then I had the opposite experience at, at Mead Alternative High School. But but this idea that ADHD people are inconvenient. We, mm-hmm. we do want to do things differently. We need a, a kind of different environment. We're constantly throwing out possibilities that are sometimes a little wild and sometimes a little genius. We're amped you up know. and talk over each other. Yeah, We're yeah. Talking. We, we have to ask a million <laughs> questions, you know, and it's totally inconvenient and disruptive. And yet... That those are the same traits that make great entrepreneurs, great startup CEOs, um, you know, all kinds of creative artists and and writers, and so you have to you can look at it as a disorder, as Luke said, or you can look at it as this is a a unique skill set that allows you to do different things, and you should leverage that to your success instead of trying to like you know continually fit into this mold that you're just not built for. I think it was there's a quote by I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson, although you might want to fact check me on that. That says like <laughs> to be yourself in a world where you're constantly pressured to be someone else is the greatest accomplishment, and I I truly think that is the challenge of being an ADHD person is like you're not built for the like norms per se of this world, but you have to sort of carve out your own niche in the way that you can best, uh, which is hard. So, man, that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Brooke Matson, ED of Spark Central, poet. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Fact check confirmed. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson. The full quote is To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment, or at least that's the part of the quote that fits on this Etsy plaque that I'm looking at. Thanks so much to Brooke for coming on. Thanks to my co host for this episode, Alyssa Ball. Connor Bacon for the edits, Brennan for the mixing and engineering, Kayla Brooke for her continued help with the podcast. That's it for us this week. If you like Range, if you like what we're up to, you can support us by going to rangemedia.co and clicking the subscribe button, rangemedia.co, not com, co, and click subscribe. It is feeling like spring sunlight is pouring in through the window as I'm recording this. I put the sunroof down. Or I guess opened it up would be the correct. <laughs> I opened the sunroof up this weekend. It is legitimately spring and I'm pretty excited. I think the older I get, the more I recognize how seasons affect me. And I am very excited about spring. I hope y'all are too. And I hope you get some time this week to go spend it out in nature. All right, y'all have a great week. Bye.